Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Hey, thank you for the uh, welcome, the opportunity to be here. Thanks, Shane, for the uh, welcome to be here and the invitation. Really do appreciate that. It's, uh, it is good to be here and to share with you. Good to be able to be here at this time. A little bit worried about the whip down there, but I, uh, I'll get over that, I think, if it's uh, not too bad. So we're talking about Joyful, book of Philippians, an amazing, amazing... Uh, I just forgot my little clicker. I'm sorry, it's on the chair. Sorry. And uh, I know you've been looking at the book of Philippians, an amazing book, where Paul, today, we're looking at this whole thought of contentment. Contentment, I think, is one of the most elusive um, aspects of our faith, of our life, really, because it's so many aspects of, of contentment. It could be financial contentment, it could be relational contentment, it could be just internal who we are contentment. There are so many aspects where to be content in all of them is very difficult. And, uh, um, and a lot of contentment is caused by external factors that seem to, don't seem to have much control over. So this area of contentment is crucial as we, as we look at it today. And so we're going to look today at what uh, we call a look of contentment in Philippians chapter 3. Shane mentioned before the Olympics, I don't know about you, but I binged watched them over the, uh, the COVID period, the, the lockdown period. And one of the things I found fascinating, I don't know about you, one of the things I found fascinating was Australian athletes, when they competed, after they competed, they would come to a microphone about from here to the third row away and they'd talk about their event and how they did and somebody would interview them from about here and ask them some questions. And from those athletes, you saw all sorts of um, emotions. There were people who felt they would, did really well to get in the final who might have come and got a bronze medal and they were excited and exhilarated and, uh, you know, they were over the top with ex- emotion. Some of them who won gold medals were so excited they swore um, on national TV. There were some who expected to win gold or expected to do better who didn't do as well as they'd thought and they were sad and disheartened um, in, in their interview, and you could tell that there were tears, there were joy and laughter, all of those things in those interviews. The interview that fascinated me the most was a young guy called Liam Adams. Liam Adams was, uh, is an Australian marathoner, and he was the, what excited me about him, he's the most content. He came 24th in the marathon. You wouldn't normally, uh, you wouldn't normally get too excited. He was just, yeah, came 24th. It was great. Liam Adams is a, he's not a full-time professional athlete. He's, a, he's an electrician. He works 60 hours a week in his electrical business. He runs 200 k's a week, lives in Melbourne, and uh, just was glad to be there. Thought it was great. Said I wanted to give up once, but mum and dad stopped me. They kept me going. And there was something about the contentment of Liam Adams. That I just went, you just went, it was so winsome. It was so exciting. So just sort of, wow, there's a guy who's not, so, you know, tight in emotion, so tied up that he, he couldn't just express, he's just glad to be there. There's something about 
contentment. And the Apostle Paul has something to say about contentment in this letter to the Philippians. And it's an amazing church. When you read the history, I'm no doubt you've gone through this, but you read the history of the Philippian church. And Paul, I don't think it was meant to go there in the time that he went there. He wanted to go somewhere else and the Holy Spirit stopped him. And he wanted to go somewhere else and the Holy Spirit stopped him and got him on a boat. And he went to Europe for the first time, to the town of Philippi. And uh, I'm sure he didn't know why, because he wasn't planning to be there at that time. We don't know how the Spirit of God stopped him and put a, you know, a stop in his heart or something to go some way and go another way. Wanted to go left, wanted to go right, but God made him go that way. And he's wandering around Philippi, and the first person he sees and the first convert in that place is a, a businesswoman called Lydia, who starts the church in her home. And a slave girl follows, and then a jailer, and then a whole bunch of people after that as as Paul spent some time there. And and then Paul went on, and he's now in Rome in sort of house arrest um, in, in writing these letters. He writes one to Philippi. And the, the church at, at Philippi were concerned about Paul. So they got one of their own, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And they... They sent him to Rome with some money and some encouragement for Paul to spend some time with him there. And expecting to find him like a bit down and out and a bit, you know, kind of morose, he was quite buoyant, thanked the church for that and were encouraged that they'd sent him some support and a, almost a valet to work with him. And so he sends back a letter with Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi. And you've got to understand that the church in Philippi didn't get this letter. They didn't read it. They heard it. So we read it now, and so there's a different sort of emotion that comes to us, a different kind of feeling. We can read a letter in the Bible quite cerebrally, but someone stood up the front of church and said this. And actually, if you read on in chapter 4, I think it is, mentions some names of some people in the church who weren't getting on too well, and he actually this letter spoken out from somebody, Epaphroditus, just saying, oh, by the way, Paul says there's two ladies here not getting on, you should get on. So it's a pretty confronting letter, but it really spells out the contentment that Paul has. And you read something of that contentment in the next chapter where... Uh, Paul says this, and you know the words probably differently, but he says, I've learned by, by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as much, with much as little. Found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. What an extraordinary statement. That's, that's a person who's content. Whatever I got, heaps or little, um, where I, circumstances of mine are for me or against me, doesn't matter. I feel content in the one who made me who I am. Extraordinary thought. So I want to just share from chapter 3 today some of the things that Paul says. And how do you develop? What's this look of contentment look like? And I want to suggest there's a few looks. The first one is a backward look. Paul takes a backward look. And it's what I would call a look of healthy detachment. Let me read it to you comes from Philippians chapter 3, the first few verses. 
Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And then he spells out why. Someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Here's Paul taking a backward look at his own life. Before he says that, though, he just sort of spells out the things that set the church apart from others. He says to start off with, we, we're the people who worship God in the spirit, we rejoice in Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. That's what sets this church, any church of Jesus, apart from any other group of people. We worship in the spirit, we rejoice in Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. We don't just go through the motions. And then Paul comes to this place where you have a, a backward look, a healthy detachment from the past. It's not an ingratitude. It's none of that. Some of his background was great. It was fantastic. And, and we've got to be honest with ourselves. When we look back, sometimes we, our past or our history isn't great. Some of us here have had a very difficult past. It's been pain. It's been anguish. It's been circumstance. It's been diagnosis. Whatever it might be, it's been things that haven't been helpful to us or for us. And some of us here have had a great past. It's been full of achievement and success and heritage and all those sort of things that make it good. Whatever the past is, take a healthy look at it. And Paul says, I've had a great past. That was Paul's past, a very great past in terms of heritage. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the favoured tribes. He's a Hebrew of Hebrew, so he's a, he's a fully-fledged Jewish man. He's done all the study. He's enthusiastic. He's kept the law. He's been well-behaved. Didn't need too much behaviour modification for Paul. He was a good man in terms of the, the law. We know some of his history. He's, uh, he's good. At, and Paul says, but whatever is what I count as, as law, as gain, Whatever I might look back and go, that was fantastic. He says, by comparison, I count it loss. In fact, that's a, a sanitised version. It's literally, I count it dung. I count it dung compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And when he says knowing Jesus, it's not an academic knowing. It's an experiential knowing. It's I know God in his in my personal life, I know God personally. It's not a cerebral, academic thing. 
He says, I, I, I count it all as loss, whether it's a great past you've had or whether it's not a great past. It's not ingratitude. Be thankful, but compared to knowing Jesus, it's done. It's a little scary, isn't it? A little confrontive. What I count as gain by comparison, I count as loss. There are some things we, we have to, about our past, just unlearn, redo, allow God to re, refocus. You may have read a book some years ago called Future Shock. It's a book by a guy called Alvin Toffler, who was a futurist, not a, not a futurist in terms of a weirdo, but a futurist who looks down the, the track and starts to try and see what's going to happen. And he said this not long ago. He said, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Now, as we look back, we might have had a fantastic past. We might have had some wonderful things or some not so great things you know, that, that have taught us some things that are great, taught us some things that are not so great. But one of the things we have to do is be able to unlearn relearn and see what God is saying about our lives. Because here's the deal, we're all broken people. Whether you've had a fantastic past or whether you've had a horrific past, we're all broken people on a journey. I'm, uh, when it comes to uh, art and all those sort of things, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. But I've come to understand lately uh, an art form called Kinshugi. Anyone heard of Kinshugi? Yeah? Well, two of us. Kinshugi is a Japanese art form which happens when a pot or a plate is broken. And there are artisans in Japan who put those plates back together again. It's their art. And they put it back together again with a sort of a mixture of glue and, and gold. And then they glaze the pot. looks like that. A broken earthenware pot looks like that. And the, the, the pot now, the, the bowl now is worth umpteen more times worth, worth more than it was when it, before it was broken. See, that's what God does with broken people. He puts us back together. When we're able to say, look, what I see in the past... Um, I can count it as gain. It was not too bad. It was quite good. But compared to being put back together by Jesus, it's nowhere near as important. So Paul takes this backward look in, in terms of his own life to bring contentment. It's part, of that, it's part of that focus. He takes a forward look. So a backward look, which is of healthy detachment, a forward look, which I think, when I look at Paul, is steely determination. Let me read to you what he says. Philippians 3, uh, verse 10 to 13. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I've not achieved that yet. But one thing I do, I've not arrived at that goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's this forward look, this steely determination. I want to know Jesus. As I said before, that's not an academic or a cerebral no. It's an intimate no. It's a personal no. I know him. It's not just an academic thing. It's not just I read the pages of the Bible and it sounds great and I know more about him. It's I want to know him. I know him more. My mum um, was a good lady, really well. She brought us up. We didn't go to church anywhere when I was a kid and, and uh, my mum brought us up. She didn't go to church either, but she knew the Bible well. She would quote us portions of the Bible when we were growing up. So she knew about God really well, but she came to know Jesus when she was 63 years of age. And the difference was enormous. She didn't just know about him or quote him to us. We were adults then, and actually she came to faith six months after I came to faith, and she knew him. And for the next 20 years of her life, her life had changed. You see, you want to know him, really know him, and the power of his resurrection. That's extraordinary. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and lives in me if we know him. I want you to think about that. That's an extraordinary statement. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and lives in me. The power of his resurrection. You know, we, we often quote this passage of Scripture, um, and we love it. It's Ephesians chapter 3, Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And we stop there. God's able to do more than we ask or imagine. What does it say after that? According to his power that is within you. According to the power of God that dwells within you. A transaction happened where God's spirit bore witness with your spirit. Now you're a child of God. And he's deposited his spirit in you and now you operate that way. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Amazing story. But he says, and I also want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. We don't like that too much. We love the power of the resurrection. We love all that. But I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the stuff he went through. I want to understand that. I want to, when it happens in my own life, I don't want to just pass over it. I want to see how it relates to Jesus and his love and his care for me. I want to know that. And he says, I'm not there yet. I'm really not there yet, but I press on toward the goal of knowing Jesus. I want to press on toward the goal of becoming like him. It's not striving it's it's not human effort but it's knowing him i uh you know shane mentioned before about the how paul seems to use his you know athletic um analogies it just amazes me that there were people in in the olympic games for example who trained for four years this time five years and their event was over in 10 seconds. Or a lap of the pool, which was less than a minute. I've been training for years. They put in hours and hours and hours and kilometre after kilometre after kilometre. 
And it's that steely determination I see Paul in that. You see, effort's not the opposite of grace. Earning is the opposite of grace. You can't earn God's grace. But once we've received God's grace, there's an effort part of it, which is a steely determination to get to know him better, to understand him, to to know his power and to know his suffering even better. We need a backward look and we need a forward look. The third one is the most, um, I think, difficult. We need an inward look, which is a look of honest discomfort. We need to look inside. It's easy to look back and to look forward and it can remain away from us, but Paul says we need to look inside as well. He says this, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heaven. It's all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. And he let us live up to what we've already maintained. Let us live up to what we've already attained. The message translation puts it a little differently. So let's keep focused on that goal. Those of us who want everything God has for us, if any of you have something else in mind, something less than total commitment, God will clear your blurred vision. You'll see it yet. Now that you're on the track, right track, let's stay on it. This is the most difficult view. It's the view within. It's where God says we're all at a certain place in life. We need to look in. We need to look inside and see where it is God wants, where we are with God, where we are in life, and how God wants to lead us on. That's the tough bit. It's quite easy to look back and say, yeah, that was my history. It was good, bad, or indifferent. Or to look forward and say, yeah, wait, let's, let's, you know, let's link arms and take the hill together. But to look inward, to be vulnerable and say, God, what is it you're saying to me? Where is that blurred vision that I have in my own life? Where are those blind spots that I don't see yet in my relationship and my walk with you because it's only as you start to look within that you will be content. Who you are in Jesus, the identity you have as a follower of Jesus is where the place of contentment really begins. It doesn't just begin in circumstances, it begins in you. Has God got you How much has God got me? Am I opening up to what he says? Am I looking within? Am I allowing God to dig deep and go further? Am I looking at what restricts me? Am I looking at the things that captivate me and take me off the path? Am I looking at those things? You know, um, in August 1973, there was an event in Sweden. You probably heard about it with the, at a place called the Credit Bank, Credit Bank, and it was called in that language, and it was where a, a man called Jan Erik Olsen went into the bank with a sawn-off shotgun, and he shot, shot the gun into the ceiling and said the party's just begun, and his plan was to go into that bank and quick robbery and get out as quickly as he could. Things went astray for him, and he ended up in the bank for days with four, four hostages, bank workers, three girls and a guy who were there and 
he was hoping for that quick robbery, but it went wrong, and he started to make demands to get out, to be released. He wanted a friend of his, Clark Olison, who was in jail, to be released, and a Ford Mustang car to go out the front so that they could get away quickly. Why not have the best, eh? And so his friend was released from jail and released into the bank with him, but they were there with the hostages for days. And on the second day, they're on a first-name basis. The hostages and Olsen and his friend, whose name was Olofsson. What started in fear became a friendship. The police were going to bombard the place and quickly come in and one of the hostages rang up the Swedish Prime Minister, a man by the name of Olaf Palm, and begged him not to do that because they were sort of taking the side of the perpetrators. He said, please don't, don't do that. So they didn't do it. An unusual relationship developed and eventually after five days the police threw in some tear gas and when they came out the police ordered that the hostages would come out first and that the two robbers would come out second and the hostages said no we want the robbers to go out first because they felt that if they went out first the police would just shoot the robbers afterwards so they asked if the robbers could go out first and then um Olsen went to jail for 10 years for armed robbery, which was a much shorter period of time because nobody would testify against him. See, it's a, it's a thing called the Stockholm Syndrome. It's where it happened. It's where it started. And what it is is where we get attached to something that is primarily not good, but we become so attached to it that it kind of becomes rusted on for us. We become good friends with the person who was there to do us damage and harm. And when you look inside, when you take an inward look, you realise there are things that you've become attached to. There are things that you come rusted on in your life that stop you being content in who you are in Jesus. There are things that just you've somehow allowed yourself or allowed myself to kind of take hold of and take comfort in that, really are not there for my good, but it seems okay to do. An inward look is a look of discomfort. We know the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as the comforter. I think sometimes the Holy Spirit is the discomforter because he makes us look within and be honest and vulnerable with ourselves and that's the only way that um, contentment can begin when you're okay with who you are in Christ, what he's done for you, that makes a difference. There's a fourth look that Paul talks about here, and it's an upward look, and it's a look of awesome destiny. It's a look of where we really, who we really are, where our, where our citizenship lies. Let me read it to you. It's in Philippians chapter 3, uh, the little bit. Some of you who are my age, and there's not too many here who are my age, you would have heard of a, a, a man called Larry Norman. Anyone heard of a singer called Larry Norman? Yep, my age, good. He wrote a, an album, or he, he sang an album called Only Visiting This Planet. 
It was a great, great album, and he was a, quite a controversial character and a bit of a radical, but, gee, he wrote some good music. And uh, if you get a chance, is he on Spotify? I don't know if he's on Spotify. Anyway, I won't go there. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21 says this, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You see, here's the truth. For those of us who follow Jesus, our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. That's where you your visa takes. I've done a lot of travel with, with compassion and uh, some of the places you, you get, I see more friendly than others. You go to some airports and they say residents and non-residents. You go to some other airports and they say residents and aliens. So you become an alien. Well, the truth is we are aliens on this planet. This isn't our permanent home. And to be content, you have to know that. You have to know that what this earth promises you, what this world promises you, ultimately will not bring you ultimate contentment. Because your citizenship and my citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour who will return. And here's the promise. My lowly body will be transformed into a glorious body. How good is that? Our lowly body will be transformed into a glorious body. And whatever life serves you up here and now, whatever life has served you up, whatever it will serve you up, whatever it's currently serving you up, whatever life serves you up, be assured that you have a citizenship, a surety way beyond this place. That's the upward look. It's a look of awesome destiny. That's your destiny, that's my destiny, and one day we will go home to where our true citizenship lies. But here's the thing, until we do, the challenge of of being a citizen of heaven, until we do, is to bring the culture of where we're the citizen to earth where we live. So our challenge now is to bring the culture of heaven to earth. That's what Jesus prayed. Bring the culture of heaven to it. That's our task now, to bring hope where there is no hope, to bring love where there is no love, to bring grace where there is no grace, to bring truth where there is no truth. That's our task now, is to bring the citizenship, the culture of where we are citizens from here until one day we enter there permanently ourselves. It's to bring that culture to a world which Paul says very clearly is living destructive lives, 
where people's God is their belly, he says, where they rejoice in things that they should be ashamed of, where people have incredibly low thoughts, we are meant to bring the culture of heaven. All the things we think about will be in our eternal future to here now until we walk into that future ourselves. That's our task. That's, only, that's the only way we'll be content, knowing there is a, a destiny for us, but until that time, bringing as much of that destiny as we can to the world in which we live. That's where contentment lies. That's what it means for us. Today, how do we find that contentment? It's not in things, it's not in the things we often put our hope in, it's not in the externals. It's making sure you take a backward look, that you look at what life has been like to this point of time and be thankful, but realise that compared to knowing Jesus, it's not gain at all, it's loss. It's to take a forward look. It's to take that steely determination, not just sit back on our laurels and wait for God to do his work, but it's actually to be, part, to be partners with God in the work that he does. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's a steely determination. It's a thing called grit. I need to take an inward look and be honest about that and be vulnerable and say, God, where am I now? Show me where I'm at. Show me who I am in you. Show me where I'm at. Show me the blind spots. Show me the things that, that need to be resolved. Show me, the, show me the things that I've become rusted onto or become attached to that I shouldn't become attached to. And help me with that. And God, help me see where the future really lies and help me bring that future to here as much as I can until I experience that future for myself one day. That's where we find contentment. That's where Paul finds contentment. That's where you and I will find contentment when we know who God is in our lives and we come to know him and know him more and know him more and know him more. Not about him, but know him. That's we're content with lies. I, I want to finish by praying for us, but I want to pray for us if, if, if we're just sensing discontent. Because we might be here today and just feeling a little discontent for some reason. I don't know what that is. And there are things in all of our lives that kind of cause that. And if you are here today and feeling a little discontent and not feeling as contented as you would love to feel... I want to pray for you particularly. And I'm going to ask you to do something, I don't know whether you do this or don't do this, but if, if you, that's you, I want you just to stand where you are. I don't do anything weird. I'm not going to ask you to come here or anywhere else. And I'm just going to pray for those particularly who today might feel a little discontent, not as contented as you would like to be. There's something that's just stirring in, in you. So I'm just not going to say for... 20 seconds. If that's you, just stand where you are. I'd just love to pray for you right from here. I'm just going to leave that open. And I want to say thank you for the courage of doing that because that's not easy. That's not easy at all. Another four or five seconds and I'll pray. God, I want to thank you and praise you so much for the courage of people who stood today and said, look, there's something I know in my own life that's discontented. 
And Father, I thank you for that um, bravery and that strength. I don't need to know what it is. I don't need to... No one needs to know what it is, but you know what it is. And Father, I thank you that each one of those people know what it is. And Father, I would pray for a, a contentment that comes from knowing you. A contentment from knowing that whatever else I have in this life or don't have in this life, it is by comparison to knowing Jesus, not enough. And Father, I pray for each person today in that process. And Father, whether it's an inward look or a forward look or a backward look or an upward look, I pray for each person who stood and I thank you for them. I thank you for them. And I pray that today, Lord God, you will give them an insight into the contentment they can have in you and what steps need to be taken for that to happen. Father, I thank you and I pray for all of us, God, that we will just know the truth of your word in our lives as we know Jesus more and more. So, Father, for each one, I thank you, praise you, in Jesus' name. Amen.